Today on Circle Back, from rags to riches. Uh, my name is Dr. Turner Nash Jr. I am the founder of Entertainment Delivery Systems, a company called Recover Health of Max Content LLC, a company called of Innovate Health. I've also founded the Bridge Resource Alliance, which is a social equity impact fund. Think of him as the Forrest Gump of entrepreneurship. Right places, right times, right ideas. It's like, man, I can do that. He'll tell you he hears voices. Out of nowhere. And he listens to them. You know you're going to lose all of this, right? And, and I'm telling you, it was so distinct that I, that I looked around. Long story short, between 08 and 10, I lost everything. Lost my house, lost my cars, lost my apartment buildings. Lost everything. And then I got indicted. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, holy crap, I'm in jail. Man, I paid my taxes. I went to school. I never hurt anybody, but I'm in jail. How did I end up here? I don't want to stay here overnight. And uh, and I'm looking at this clock. Man, it's 12.30. It's 1 o'clock. It's 1.30. It's 2 o'clock. And I'm like, crap. They finally come back and they call my name. I just walked out and I tell you, I've never seen the sun like I saw it that day. Um, I'd never smelled air like I smelled that day. Yeah, there's a there's a rush that I have on my life right now, where I don't know how much time I have, but I know that what I do have in me is meant to help other people. From the Chase Studio at the Nashville Entrepreneur Center, this is Circle Back, where we trace the life cycle of the startup from bright idea to big payoff. I'm your host, Clark Buckner. Um, growing up in Cleveland. Turner Nash started seizing opportunities at a young age in a place where opportunity was fairly scarce. Man, those are the good old days. I remember long winters and short summers. I remember newspaper routes. I remember riding my bicycle to and from the park, which was about three doors down. You know, it all seems like it's a huge world in your childhood, and then you go back and realize that everything was in a half a square mile. remember living in a community um, with other people that looked like me that were in the same socioeconomic status as myself later came to find out what, what we would deem that to be now would be like the projects, right? This was the Reagan era, right? So we're talking like uh, 1980 or so. Man, those are probably the most fun days of my life. You know, friends were friends. There were no politics, there were no bills, right? As a kid, you're just running around living your best life. 
You know, all of those things were the basis of me becoming who I am. Oh man, you're talking 80s. We're, we're kids are raising themselves, right? Like we're latchkey kids. Remember all of that? You know, you go to school, you come home, you pull out your key, you go in the house. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of independence in the 80s. There were no cell phones. You know, we didn't have any money for pay phones. You were just where you were supposed to be when you were supposed to be there. And ultimately, there was a level of trust. And um, yeah, we raised ourselves. I think there was a switch that I probably had. I was timing out by technology. Technology has been a really great theme throughout my life. I, I learned early um, that a new technology can create excitement. It can also create opportunity. And then, you know, we ended up moving out of the projects into a, into a house sort of in the, in the city, but more towards what we would consider now like the suburbs. And then things began to open up. My mother brought home this Laserdisc player and Star Wars. And, and the movie is like, this, it looked like an album. And, and you'd put it in and my friends were like, you have Star Wars at your house? I'm like, yeah, isn't that cool? And they're like, well, we want to watch it. I'm like, man, it's like 50 cents. You know, you can come over and watch it. And, you know, we'll make some popcorn and go to the store and buy some candy. And uh, I, I remember having a living room full of people. And my mother comes home from work and she's like, what the hell are all these kids doing in my house? And she goes, Turner, you can't charge your friends money to come over to your house and watch a movie. And I was like, no, well, the movie theaters do it. Like, you know, it's why, why can't I do it? She goes, well, we don't own a movie theater. This is our home, right? So she made me give all the money back. And uh, that was a really hard lesson for me. around 87 my mom is like hey I'm moving out of the country <laughs> like where are you going to go she's like I'm moving to St. Thomas there's a job opportunity down there I'm going to go take it you can come live with me or you can go live with your dad and I was like Phew. so I'll never forget man it was like a Friday and uh, I'm like dad I want to come live with you and he's like man you know I got I to gotta run that by my, my new wife and uh, I'll get back with you It's like somebody hit me in the chest. It was like, man, like I'm your kid. You should, shouldn't be anything to think about. So I move in with him. Probably one of the more rough parts of Cleveland. And uh, I just remember thinking, oh man. And then I move back, and I'm and, I, and I'm back in the hood. Crack. It had taken over Turner's childhood streets and changed everything. Not only did people disappear from dying and being what we call smoked out, but also, you know, you saw the proliferation of prisons, you know, and, and people just, one day they were in the neighborhood and the next they were gone. So Turner Nash is back in inner city Cleveland, reeling away from all the changes. Move from my mom to my dad. Move from the suburbs to the inner city. Move from living with a woman to living with a man, right? Move from living with a banker to living with a police officer. And it, 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 you could almost get culture shock within your own family, right? Like, and, and, I, and I just began to hear his stories during the day about um, what he had encountered as an officer. And then I would, I, would, I would put that up against my 
experiences with my friends who were in high school, who a lot of them were in gangs and sold dope and didn't have any parents at home. And, uh, you know, I'll never forget, there's this one guy who was our high school quarterback and he'd missed a whole bunch of games. And, you know, and, and this is how real life kind of hits you in the face. And, you know, we're, man, we're beating him up his first practice back, right? Like, don't miss practice. You're letting the team down. He starts crying and he's like, man, I haven't seen my mother in three days. And I have to be at home to take care of my sisters. And man, we all felt like crap, right? And that was the first time where I was like, man, this crack shit is real, you know? And then um, going to school and, and literally watching families be torn apart and communities just eviscerated because the working class then became drug addicts, right? Because you're living check to check and sometimes still in poverty and sometimes, you know, people need that getaway or that relief from the stress and they turn to, you know, maybe it was marketed that it was as safe as marijuana was in the 70s. I don't know. Today we're at John Carroll University, which is a private four-year Jesuit Catholic university that is known for its heavy emphasis on service and giving back to the community. I went there because it was dang near free, right? (laughs) So, um, you know, I was accepted at other universities, but they gave me the best financial aid package. Man, what a school. John Carroll University is the first place that taught me how to think critically. Jesuit philosophy, Nietzsche, Nicomachean ethics. These are things that you probably won't have an average conversation about, you know, at the local Starbucks, you know, James Joyce. I mean, you know, I remember all these things because it was like opening up a new world. Anyway, I end up getting put out because of my grades. I end up having to go to Cuyahoga Community College for a semester. And when I go back there, you got to remember I'm coming from a private school back to community college. I start seeing where real life issues arise again. There are mothers in class with their children. There are people who are getting off of work and coming and leaving to go to work in the middle of class. And I was like, oh, man, this is not where I just came from. I need to get my stuff together. So I end up flying, like turn my brain back on, ended up flying through those classes and ran back to John Carroll, hoping that they would take me back. And they did. State Farm came on campus, and they were like, man, we're looking to hire. And I was like, great, what do I need to do? And they had these placement tests. And I just, I fly through the test, just blessed, man. Like, I, I, I give all glory to God, really. I end up flying through the test. I hand the guy the test. He goes, are you finished? I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm finished, unless you get a backside that I didn't see, but it looked blank. Guy's name is Dick Swank. Um... <laughs> Which is like one of the all-time gangster names, right? For an insurance guy. And he and he hires me like the next day. And I'm I'm on my way coming out of college. I don't have anywhere to go. I can't go back home. And he's like, man, I'm gonna start you out at thirty thousand a year. And I was like, whoa, that's awesome. Worked for State Farm in Menor, Ohio until two thousand. Left State Farm to become a financial advisor with uh, AXA and DLJ and Equitable. Began to do qualified and non-qualified planning. 
man, I got some Forrest Gump ass stories, right? So <laughs> I go to a trade show one weekend in Cleveland and I run into a guy named Preston Hagens. Uh, Preston comes up, he's got on a nice suit, he's got on a nice Rolex, and he's like, man, I've got a business idea, and I'm trying to sell him life insurance and mutual funds. And he's like, that's not what I want to talk about. I said, well, let's grab coffee. He says, I got a great idea about um, a motorcycle product that I've been thinking about. And I was like, all right, well, tell me about it. So he goes, I have a concept that when you wear nice shoes and you ride a motorcycle, the shifter, it rubs on your shoe and you mess up really good shoes. And I have this thing I want to call a shoe band where it goes over your shoe and, and it prevents that. And I was like, well, have you made it yet? He goes, no. And somewhere in my soul, I knew that I could do that. That kid who sold seats to his own Star Wars screenings always had a sense for how to make good money. So we go through the whole manufacturing thing and I'm sitting on the couch one night and uh, I see this commercial from Walmart and it's like, we buy American. And I was like, oh shit, I'm American. You know, we were getting spun a lot. We are a small, small company trying to do business with Walmart. I never forget this. Driving down the street one day, it's hot as crap. We don't have any air conditioning in the car. We're going between shops. I pick up, I'm like, hey, what's up? I want to buy six units. I was like, what do you mean six units? He's like, I'm like, you mean six cases? He goes, nah, six units, six, six shoe bands. I, I hung up the phone. <laughs> I hung up on him. And he calls back and he's like, oh, we got disconnected. I said, nah, I hung up on you, man. I could sell that myself. Like, if you really want to do a deal or you don't want to do a deal. But what I'm not going to do is sell you six shoe bands. And he goes, you need to call me back when you get serious. I say, I'm very serious. And then I hang up the phone again. Calls back an hour later and says, I'll buy 30,000 units. We end up selling Walmart those 30000 and we end up still having our other line of business, which is selling them ourselves. And I think that year, good Lord, man, I, I think, you know, we, we were well into the six figures on a, on a startup business, but I didn't know that's what it was. I didn't have the, the level of financial literacy to know that that's what it was. It was just, here's a deal. Here's some money. Let me let me sell this product. I didn't have an act two or an act three or, you know, a business continuation model or any sort of pro forma. It was just a one time deal. He rode the shoe band as far as he could, then decided to put the brakes on the partnership. And I sold my portion to him. Uh, and then from there, I took what was left over and moved into a company that I had called Triton Development, which is where uh, another Forrest Gump story. I'm going to put my money in the bank and this older guy. He's like, what are you going to do with that money? And I was like, put it in a savings account. He goes, man, come in the back. And so I go in the back. He gives me this list. He says, man, these are all the houses that the bank owns. We call them REOs. If I would allow you to take your money and buy as many of these houses as you want, 5% down, is that something that would interest you? And I was like, hell yeah. So I bought my first block of homes that I was then going to rehab and then rent out and then sell to other investors that didn't have time to do it. And then that became a really great business to where you know, I could do that and be independent and spend time at home with my wife and my new child. And, you know, that grew into a really great business. And what I ran into issues with was every time I got ready to close on a house, the mortgage broker would go up on their fees at the last minute. And um, that really ticked me off to the point one day 
I was like, I'm just going to start my own mortgage company. And I talked to my lawyer. I was like, this is what I'm going to do. He goes, man, nobody starts a mortgage company just to cut their fees. And I was like, man, I'm selling a lot of houses, right? And I'm buying a lot of houses. And I can't have that be a hole in my P&L that I can't account for, that somebody would just decide that they want to charge more. So I started the mortgage company in Ohio. I had to go down to Florida, you know, because I wanted a license there too. And then Colorado and Michigan and some other states. But, you know, grew that business. And I was very proud of that business to be able... I remember, man, I'm like a kid from the hood, right? Like, so to be pushing that kind of money, maybe 30 million a month in loans, you know, but it wasn't a small operation, Um, you know, but then once you realize what the, what the lenders were up to. Let's talk about the speed with which we are watching this market deteriorate. The Dow traders are standing there watching in amazement. I don't blame them. Like the Countrywides and all the other folks that end up going out of business for cuffing paper and you hear about Wall Street and, you know, the the lack of regiment in their underwriting guidelines that all the brokers were pushing and, you know, all the, all the brokers on the street go to jail. Nobody, nobody on Wall Street misses a beat. They still get their bonuses that year. You know, I, I, I man, I was really good at that, right? I was really good at it. It's like 30, 30 million a month in loans, a residential loan. Good Lord. I mean, you figure one, two percent every deal, every month, somewhere in there. And then I could see that I was changing lives doing that, right? People who never thought that they could move to those inner and outer ring suburbs, you know, were getting a chance to live somewhere that they didn't think that they could live. Their kids could go to better schools, right? Um, so yeah, that was that was another. You know, I'm going to say Walmart was the first. It was seed capital for all the other businesses that came after it. And from there, just, you know, it was like a house of cards, man. It just, it kind of all fell apart. I ended up basically selling off um, ownership interest to two guys who continued to run it. I'm like, man, just send me a check every month. Just send me a dividend. And uh, and they took it over. And then I moved to Nashville and I was going to try to do it here as well. But it just, you know, I got caught up in going back to school to get my master's degree and some other things. Turner had walked away from the day-to-day mortgage business, but the company was still active and still in his name. I had one guy in one office that was doing business with some uh, people who would bring money in from out of the country, would purchase homes using that money, would do um, like fake appraisals or fake renovations or whatever, and then they would sell those homes and, you know, or people who would get mortgages and some sort of way filter that money back to whatever the, the other country was. You know, I had no knowledge of any of that. Uh, but because I own the company, they wanted to hold me responsible, you know, for these individuals. 
in, in the actions that they undertook. There's a guy who used to cut my grass on my rental properties, and he's the one that called me. He was like, man, you got indicted. And I was like, what does that mean? And he's like, you know, indicted. I was like, no, I don't. What is it like? What does that mean? He goes, by the police. I said, I don't even live there. What did I do? And uh, it, it's, it's so strange. Like, you're in such a state of panic. And then there was a descent into what I call an 18-month, really an 18-month gut check, right? Like, I was out here making money, spending money, living frivolously, and I didn't help anybody. I didn't help anybody. You know, at the end of the day, um, I don't know, man, it was 10 years ago, but it still brings back a, a lot of, um, I, the only word that comes to mind is anguish, right? Like 18 months of going through pre-trials and, and that level of stress on yourself and your family is not something that I would ever hope to go through ever again. But, you know, luckily and fortuitously, and, you know, it was a blessing and, you know, I didn't do anything and the case was dismissed ultimately, but it, it never leaves you. You know, it's still with me to this day where that was just a really deep and depressing, heavy, you know, part of my life where you you know you didn't do anything, but in the court of public opinion, you know, you may end up being on the cover of the Tennessean, you know, which I was at the time. I think, um, man, in this, in this wonderful roller coaster of life and the Forrest Gump story was... Once I got my degree, my doctorate, you know, we were just in a job market where you couldn't get anything and I'd taken on a temporary position with the Tennessee Department of Labor to crunch some numbers for them. And then I ended up being hired on as an advisor and then later became the unemployment insurance director for the state of Tennessee. That day of transition in a jail holding cell had drilled deep into his conscience. I'm still uh, unemployment insurance director, but I'm like, I need to do something else. So I start a, that's when I started, I had actually started the idea of entertainment delivery systems in my graduate school, one of my graduate school classes and figuring out school systems and designs. And I'd gone back to that. And then um, I was like, man, there's, there's nothing to do when you're locked up. And this is like right around 2011. And that year, the iPad comes out. And I was like, oh, my God, what if you could have an iPad and you could run schools over the iPads in the prisons? And then people don't have to wait because there are brick and mortar limitations to how many people you can have in a class. And we could blow that out of the water by having distributed educational models. He took that transformative idea to a for-profit correctional company. I said, hey, um, who, who's over your education program? They gave me the guy's name met with me. I asked him about the idea. So it was like a pitch. That guy was an ass. He was like, I don't want him to get out. The more people we have in here, the higher the stock price goes. And I need it to hit X before I can retire. And, I, and I'm not even joking, man. That was like the same feeling I got when, when, when my mother told me there was no Santa Claus. And I thought, wow, that, that tied in directly with the one in three black men is going to go to prison. And then I began to read more and more and more. And during my dissertation, I studied quite a bit, clearly. 
there's a guy, I think it was 1889, he's talking about um, how the United States should not allow black people to go to middle school or high school because it'll mess up the labor market. And we need people out here in the streets that can farm and do all the things that we need them to do. If we make them too hard, then they'll, they'll compete with us. came across the allegory of the cave. Plato. A whole bunch of people live in a cave. They're looking at objects on the wall by fire, so everything's a little bit distorted. One person makes it out of the cave. They actually get to see what a real tree looks like, and then they go back in the cave and tell everybody, but everybody in the cave thinks they're crazy. That was my stint in jail that day. I'd gone in, and I'd come out, and I'm trying to tell everybody who's never been in that that's really, it's like a reverse, right? Like, that's on the outside of where we are in our reality. And I want to bring the real tablet to that. And nobody listened. I went to the commissioner at the time, Carla Davis. I said, I'm going to have to disclose an outside business activity. This is what I think I'm going to do next. And it won't, it won't disrupt anything that I'm doing here at work, but I really want to focus on inmate education. So now I had my first job during the day, and then I would get off at five, and then I'd work this other job between six and midnight. And then I'd sleep from midnight to five, and then I'd take the kids to school and I had to do it all over again. I get a call one day from a telecom giant in the correctional space that says, hey, we heard about what you've been doing. We don't really want a tablet. We don't want to do education, but we do want to do music. We think, you know, can you make us an MP3 or an MP4 or, you know, some sort of uh, tablet device? They start with music delivery in the prisons of Pennsylvania. Then California bites on the original idea where he wanted to be all along, inmate education. Me selling what I want to sell doesn't mean that anybody wants to buy it. And often in business, I'm, I'm ending up selling a solution to the person who has money that needs a solution, and then I'll come back to what I want later, right? It was lonely out there, man. Like... It's lonely out there when you're really like that far ahead of the innovation. Like to put a tablet in prisons was not something that was easily done. A lot of naysayers, a lot of security issues. And you got to remember, you know, people really just don't care about inmates too much. You know, we, we come up against a lot of people who'd be like, man, my, my kid's in fifth grade and he needs a tablet. Where's his tablet? Why does an inmate get a tablet? Someone did want not just the product, but the entire company. A wise friend told Turner to jump on the opportunity. He says, man, you got to be careful. He works at IBM now. He says, somebody comes up to you and they say they want to buy your shit. You better sell it to them because they're going to steal it if you don't. <laughs> and I was like, wow. And, and I'm telling you, when I sold IDS, the tablet portion to the telecom company, and then I joined them as an executive, there was an entire strategy that would have taken me out within the next 12 months.
He stayed on with the buyer, GTO, as an executive, but the itch to create and solve problems would need scratching again. He transitioned out of GTO. So sitting on the couch for the six months of 2020, um, my kids get out March 6th from school for spring break. COVID's running rampant. They never go back. We're all watching these horrors on television. And I'm sitting there, uh, May 29th, it's my anniversary. And I'm watching Scarface on TV <laughs> with my wife after we just had some takeout dinner. And it's it's the part where they're in the restaurant and he's like, This it? That's what it's all about, man. Right, like we went through all of this just to be eating and drinking. Like, <laughs> is that what this is about? And I was sitting there like, oh my God, did I go through all this work and all this trouble? Just to sit around and eat and drink. I got to get back out here. I'm 45. About a day or two later, I had another one of those weird dreams where I wake up and I have my coffee. My wife is like, what's wrong with you? I said, man, I had a dream. I said, Laura was like, make a better system. I don't know what that means. Make a better system. Make a better system. So I'm, I'm working with it for like a month. I get a call from a buddy of mine who is a, is a SVP over at Meharry Medical College. He's like, man, are you watching this stuff on TV? This thing is is ripping neighborhoods and communities apart. You know, we're in the middle of it. You know, do you want to try to maybe work with me to build a solution? And I was like, nah, <laughs> I'm good. It's dangerous out there. And, and I thought about it, build a better system. I can't say no. When it comes to getting tested for COVID-19, time is of the essence. Nowadays, even a negative One of my kids had gone somewhere and they came back and one of the people that they were around had COVID. So I'm like, oh, we all got to go get tested, right? So we go to the Williamson County Ag Center and they stick the thing way up your nose. The kids are crying. It takes like nine days to get those results back. Now, mind you, we're all in the house yelling down the hall because we don't know who has it and who doesn't. Thank God we all come back negative. But then I started thinking, there's no way you can run a business like this. There's no way that you could wait nine days for somebody to come back to know whether or not they're positive. And I called back. I'm like, I think I have an idea. Let's work this out. I said, man, what if we Uberize the ambulances to go and run concierge appointments for COVID testing? And uh, he's like, man, I think that would work. And then I said, well, we can't wait nine days for a lab. I think I know somebody who has a lab, so I end up putting together the system again. I've got the Uberization of EMTs, trained medical professionals. I've got the lab. What I don't have is customers. We were fortunate enough to sign a deal with Nashville Convention and Visitors Bureau that said we have maybe 1,200 businesses, and we want to be one of the businesses that gets regular testing because we're around people all the time. So they became our first real customer. And we were like, oh, my gosh, there's real value here, right? There's tremendous value here because not only could that person get their coworker sick, but anybody that they're waiting on can also get sick. And there's all these technology needs that I'm familiar with because of my history in technology. And then I'm like, oh, my goodness, I'm a healthcare executive. <laughs> and that really just happened just, just like that. If you're keeping count, we're up to six or seven businesses by now. And no doubt there will be more. But Dr. Nash says none of it would have existed or succeeded without his faith, without listening to the voice. You can't just go to church and say you're with me. If you're not with me, you're still not 
helping anybody. You're still not donating any money. You're still not doing all these other things that you know you're supposed to do with the gifts that I gave you. And, and maybe it sounds crazy to some people, man, but the Lord talking to me, it sounds like my voice, but I know it's not me. I was driving down Old Hickory Boulevard. Voice comes up, says, go get baptized right now. And I was like, man, it's Wednesday. You know, church is open on Wednesday. And, and I'm having this conversation in the car. And the voice is like, man, make a left, go to church. I didn't ask you to think about it. I just told you to go get baptized. And I was like, okay. And I knock on the door. There's a door. I knock on the door. There's nobody there. The parking lot's empty. And I was like, man, I knew the church was going to be closed. It's a Wednesday. And the voice was like, this is what you were supposed to do because you had to listen. Man, this is crazy. So like if you're psychotic or you're on medication, you'd probably be thinking like, what am I going through here? But I knew what it was at that moment. I knew what it was. So I go in Sunday, I get baptized, and the guy says, listen, being baptized is like being a newborn. Don't go out here running and being a Jesus freak, trying to tell everybody you're holier than everything. You're literally learning how to walk and talk as a Christian. You're literally learning how to walk and talk with greater morality and greater responsibility. And I never forgot that. I have narrowed my focus to entrepreneurship, prison reform, and education. I can't do everything, but those three I focus on. I've become much, much better at telling people how much I don't know. Just it, 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 There's so much weight that comes off of you, but I'm willing to learn, right? And if you're willing to learn, you're willing to study. And if you're willing to study, I find that that is when I, when I receive the majority of my discernment. I don't walk around aiming to make a whole bunch of money. I do walk around aiming to solve complex problems that involve a lot of people. You know, trying to make sure that I give back to the community. Thanks for listening to this episode of Circle Back. And thank you to Dr. Nash for sharing his story. We're thankful he's brought his focus in entrepreneurship and education here to the EC specifically to one of our flagship statewide programs called Twin Day. In Kiswahili, Twin Day means let's go. And it's our rally cry here at the EC for founders of color. We also invite you to our in-person Twin Day Summit happening later this month, Thursday evening, June 23rd, and all day Friday, June 24th here at the EC. Meet our leaders, founders, and partners and get an insider sneak peek into our plans to continue amplifying Twin Day across Tennessee to help Black and Latinx founders grow their businesses. For tickets, visit our website, ec.co. We invite you to listen to Twin Day, Rethinking Entrepreneurship. We'll bring in guests to engage in open and honest conversations with incredible Black and Latinx business experts, investors, and other successful founders located throughout Tennessee and other parts of the United States. In each episode, you'll hear from successful founders and entrepreneurial innovators of color who take the time to circle back to share the peaks and valleys of their journeys. We'll also illuminate the hurdles and opportunities that exist within the larger world of startups, venture capital, and business more broadly. Join us and get the latest updates at ec.co slash twin day podcast.
You've been listening to Circle Back. To subscribe, visit ec.co slash circle back and follow, rate, and review the show anywhere you get your podcasts. Circle Back is made possible by the generous support of the Beth and Randy Chase family. Also, thank you to our media partner, Nashville Post. Keep your pulse on all things Nashville business and more by subscribing to their newsletter at nashvillepost.com. And a shout out to our friends at Lightning 100 for supporting the show. A big thanks to our team from our creator and executive producer, Greg Allen. Script writing by Demetria Kalademos. And a big thank you to the rest of the EC staff. I'm Clark Buckner, and we'll see you soon on another episode of Circle Back. Circle Back.